And uh, we today are going to finally finish up our series on freedom from religion. And I actually had a few more messages planned in this series, but I realized looking at the calendars, like, wow, we have like literally pretty much a month till Easter. So we need to get on to something else. And uh, so I decided to, to wrap up this series, uh, series today. And, uh, and this is the message I was hoping and waiting to, to preach all along. It's a very... Uh, from the very beginning when I designed this series, this, this was the message that this was all building towards. And, and it's a message that is extremely, extremely important when it comes to this topic of, of ending uh, negative religion. And we're going to talk today about the unanswered prayer of Jesus. And if you are actually honest with your heart, not everybody is, but if you're actually honest <laughs> with your heart you will be someone who has said, yeah, I've had an unanswered prayer. And uh, we've all had prayers that have gone unanswered. And, and, uh, and, and if that's you, you know what? You're, you're not alone at all. Because Jesus himself prayed a prayer that was not some frivolous prayer like, you know, find me a parking lo- a spot, but a very passionate, desperate prayer right before he was arrested and crucified. And his passionate, desperate prayer has still completely gone unanswered. And, and here's his prayer, because this is what we're going to talk about today. It's found in John 17. And uh, again, this is one of Jesus' final prayers, his final time he spends with his father. And this is one of his last sort of cries out to the father before he's arrested. And he says, I pray that they, and he's talking about all his followers, you and I, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me. Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one, just as you and I, hey, Michael, (laughs) the screen went blank. (laughs) One second, we'll pause here. Oh, there we go. Back. Okay, back to it. Okay. I've given them the glory you have gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. Uh oh. I can. It'll stop there. Oh, it's back. Okay. Worst case, I'll get my phone. I'll, I'll read it off my phone. All right. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such. Okay. I'm going to get my phone. Hold on. We were seriously having technical issues with the screen this morning, but uh, hopefully it'll stay on. Okay. Uh, May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And, uh, and so that, that one of the, the, the central starting points of this text is verse 22. Jesus says that he has given us, his followers, the same glory that the Father gave him. And you think about that, all the, the glory that Jesus had. The, the, the glory the Father gave to Jesus, Jesus gives to you and I. Another, there's a sense that we have been glorified. 
Uh, We carry this incredible glory from the Father, the same glory Jesus had. Now, the question is, why did God glorify us? Why did, you know, God the Father give it to the Son and give it to us? Why did did He give us this glory? You know, we might say, well, you know, maybe it's so we could have, you know, uh, you know, big churches or we could have big evangelistic ministries or, you know, so we could be really cool when it comes to the prophetic or healing or, you know, all those things that, that we, that, that kind of make us feel good and big and impressive and, and we like those things, but that is not why Jesus gave us his glory. The reason Jesus passed on his glory is because <laughs> this text says, so that we might be one, uh, so that we might actually be unified. The, the very purpose that, that Jesus passes on his glory is so that we might be one, just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. And so this is the point of the glory. Now I see my screen is dead, so I'm going to definitely have to find it. Okay, well, I'll look it up here. Hold on, I've got to download it from my Google Drive. Okay, now it's gone. All right, I got it on here, so if that dies up there. No, it's half back. <laughs> All right, this is going to get awkward. <clears throat> All right, so the reason he has given us glory is actually so that we might be one. Uh, I mean, you think about the glory being passed on, that Jesus is the very purpose that I have given glory to my followers is not so they can primarily use it again to have big churches or ministries or look impressive or even do healings and all that wonderful people. It's, it's actually so that we might be one. And he says it over and over in this text. May they be one just as you and I are, 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 uh, are one. Uh, and he talks in this text about being perfectly unified. So this is not Jesus saying, you know, I'm going to take the glory from the Father and pass it unto you so you can like at least sort of attempt to be unified or that you can at least struggle at being unified. No, he is that they, we would actually be perfectly unified. And the example is just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are unified, that is what Jesus is praying for, that all of his followers, not just the followers who look like you and me, but all of us, all of his followers would be would be actually one. I mean, it's, it's a powerful prayer. You talk about a prayer of faith. <laughs> well, 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 that's it. And the reason uh, for it actually is this, so that the world will believe you sent me. Or he goes on to say that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Now think about that. Jesus says, I am passing on the most precious thing in the whole world to you guys, my glory. And the reason I want to pass it on is so that you might be one, not just superficially one, but perfectly one. And the result of that will be that people will know that you've sent me. The result of that will actually be that people will know, and and notice what Jesus says. He says that they will begin to realize that the same love the Father has for Jesus is the same love the Father has for you and I. 
In other words, the very mission of the church, which is helping people to understand that God loves them, helping understand that Jesus was sent, is answered in our unity. Is what Jesus, the, the follow the thought. Jesus gives glory so that we might be one, and when we are one, then the world will know that Jesus is real and that God loves them. And we develop all kinds of ministries trying to help people understand the love of God. And we develop all kinds of things trying to let people know that, you know, God loves them. We have tracts and ministries and evangelistic crusades and, and all of these things. Yet the one thing that Jesus says, which would actually works, which is unity, we have completely failed on. I mean, there is a sense that we have as the church absolutely uh, abused the glory of God. Because again, the very reason he gives us the glory, he says in this text, is so that we by, might be one, and the, re the reality is the church has done a very horrible job at being one. And uh, I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit. I mean, you can only look at sort of the denominational tree, and you realize that, that I mean, there are over 3,000 denominations, at least in this world, and most of those denominations and groups have been formed through, through division. Uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about this before, that if you, if you took actually a class in church history, which I took two full seminary classes on it, in a lot of ways you can, you can summarize church history in, in the terms of, of um, uh, the, the three words debate, divide, and fight. That, that we tend to debate with people, other Christians who are different than us, because it threatens our identity, and then we want to separate from those who you can't convince, and then we fight against all who disagree, whether by words or through, through swords. And, and we've looked at some things throughout church history where, where the height of this was the European religious wars, where you know, 8 to, to 12 million Christians were killed by Christians killing each other because of doctrinal differences. You know, the Catholics killing the Protestants and the Protestants killing the Catholics and the, the Catholics and the Protestants killing the, the Anabaptists because, I mean, they, they, they had different theologies. I, I mean, how much more abusive can you get of the glory of God than that? Where Jesus says, I have given them the very glory of God so they might be one. And when they are one, the world will know just how loving I am. And in many respects, we have done the exact opposite. We, we debate and we divide and we fight and we take the glory of God and we use it for the exact opposite thing that, that God is really wanting in, in our heart. And, uh, you know, maybe we can understand this. Um, um, this is really confusing me here, sorry. There we go. Uh, church um, division, we can actually trace right back to the early church. And, and so, I mean, sometimes we think, you know, if we could just get back to the good old days of the early church, you know, they, they never had problems of division. Actually, most of the New Testament texts outside the Gospels are actually dealing with church conflict. Uh, it was common right from the beginning. Even big, big books like the whole book of Romans actually was written not just to tell people about being saved through faith, but the whole book of Romans actually, actually boils down to this debate between the Jew and the Gentile Christians, where they are fighting each other over, and, and, and the author of Romans has to step in and say, no, you're, you're both saved by faith. And he goes on to say, you know, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food, because they're debating over, can you eat sacrificed meat, or you can't eat sacrificed meat. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
And just an example of this debate, even in the early church, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no more divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Again, Paul uses the same terminology, perfectly united. It's the same thing that Jesus was saying. I am praying that they would take the glory I've given them so they might be perfectly united. Paul says, my brothers and sisters, some of from Chloe's households have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, another says, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. I mean, he says, is Christ divided? <laughs> and later he says, I mean, why are you divided over different teachers? I mean, they're all yours, they're all part of your family. And yet the church still is divided in the same way today. You know, you know, I follow this teacher, well, I follow this teacher, I follow this theology, well, that theology sucks, I follow this other one. And, and we're taking the very glory of God where Jesus said, I want you to use this glory for unity Again, we turn around and use it for division. Um, division and conflict is, is common in churches today. More than the 19,000 congregations every year experience major conflict. Uh, 40% of church members, just some statistics here, 40% of church members who leave their church do so because of conflict. And uh, just because it is, it's, it's so common in the church, 34% of all pastors presently serve congregations that force their previous pastors to resign. Uh, Thomas Rayner, who does a lot of research over conflict and division in churches, uh, he says, here's the top things that church members argue over. Number one, worship and music style. Number two, the volume of the music in the services. Number three, uh, why their church is declining. And number four, proper attire for church services. I mean, these are all super serious things that really have to do with the gospel, you know. Uh, number five, the pastor's salary. Number six, opinions on various megachurches. Number seven, uh, the number of hours a pastor works each week. Uh, number eight, why people left the church. Number nine, the role of the pastor's wife. And number 10, the perspectives on pastor's Children's. I mean, there's always this, uh, this you know, the fa pastor's family is always to be, supposed to be in some sense a mascot for the church in certain ways, so often they're in, in conflict. So the top reasons. Uh, another uh, study said that here are some reasons for source of major church conflict. Number one, it has to do with members' behavior. Number two, money. <laughs> Number three, worship. Number four, leadership style, decision-making, uh, program priorities, and, and theology. And so uh, I mean, I, have, I, I know this guy who is actually quite a famous worship leader. I spent some time with him, and he, he always uses this joke. <laughs> when, when there's something that, you know, maybe two people start fighting over, he says, you know, he always says, you know, the world would never fight over that, but Christians sure would. And, and it's funny because there's kind of truth to that. I mean, the idea that churches have split over the color of carpet, well, uh, that can actually, actually, um, actually happen. Um, I mean, you can picture why this is difficult. I mean, just picture two people, uh, a husband and a wife. And Marie and I actually just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary on, on, on Tuesday. And, uh, and we, you know, we have a great marriage. I mean, we have our ups and downs, but you know, we have a, a really good marriage. But you know, to be married 25 years in this culture is rare. Uh, to be married 10 years in this culture is rare because we know for two people to really get along for a long time is really, really, really hard. Now, what if you take two people and you add some kids and some teenagers in there? 
I mean, how much harder is it when you add that to a family to get along? I mean, because all of a sudden there's issues with the kids, and then there's issues in the marriage, and then, you know, the teacher, teenagers are freaking out. I mean, think how hard it is for a family of four to actually really get along. And it's one of the reasons I'm really blessed in my family, because my wife and I and my two boys, I mean, we, we get along so well and love hanging out together. Uh, but, you know, even that's rare, to have a family that is really close together. Now, let's say you, you throw in a, a larger group of people, maybe 15 people. I mean, think even how much harder it is for 15 people to get along for the long term. I mean, just a marriage is hard enough, let alone a big group. Now, then you expand that to a church. Now, all of a sudden, you have 100 people, you have 200 people, you have 500 people. I mean, I mean just thinking about that, it's like, I mean, no wonder it is so hard to get along if two people can't even get along. And then you throw in convictions about theology and, and spirituality, and I heard the voice of God, and I mean, it just, it can go nutty, and, and it can be very, very difficult. But just because something is difficult doesn't mean we run from it, because we follow Jesus. And this was not, again, some simple prayer of Jesus saying, you know, can, you know, maybe if the church can work this out, that's okay, but if not, that's okay. This was a passionate prayer. He's saying the very, again, the very reason God has given us his glory is so that we might not divide and fight and, and battle with each other, but we might be unified. And that unity, again, is going to be the answer to the mission of the church, I mean, one of the reasons the church has so hard, a hard time sharing the love of God with people and carrying out the mission is because we've missed the step that Jesus clearly told us, that glory is given so that we might be one, and when people see we are one, then the world's going to see the love of God because they're going to look at this group of people and say, how in the world are you getting along? Because I don't see that anywhere else in the world. There must be something different with you guys. But the reality is we tend not to look any different than the world. Now, why is uh, unity so hard? I want to talk a little bit about that and then talk about some ways we can work on unity. Uh, the first reason why unity is, is tough is that we are flooded with information and differing viewpoints. We are flooded with information and differing viewpoints. I mean, think about how much information we are faced with today. We have the internet, which we didn't have like 20 years ago. We didn't have YouTube. I mean, right now, you can go online and be exposed to so much different information. You can be exposed to so many different kind of teachers and theological views, and we're flooded with that, which creates more conflict. Because all of a sudden, you have a group of people coming together who the whole week have been listening to different teachers and reading different books, and they have different ideas and have different perspectives. And I mean, you go back 100 years ago, you think about a simple village like this, I mean, you were not exposed to a lot of different information. You were not exposed to other theologies. You grew up in your family. You had your friends. Maybe there was one church in the village where the pastor preached his theology. You ex kind of accepted that. There wasn't really all these other theological views. It was very, very simple. I mean, for most of church history, the pastor was sort of the, the dispenser of theological truth for the church. And, and I tell you, that's not at all true anymore. I am not the theological person in this church because I have my theology and then all of you throughout the week are listening and reading to different stuff because we're exposed to so much information, so many different viewpoints, and we all come together and, and we look at each other and go, what's wrong with you? The reality is this flood of information and theologies and teachers and ideas and different views of Christianity make, just make unity harder because we're no longer unified around one theology anymore. We're unified uh, we should be unified around Jesus. That's, that's what we're getting to. 
uh, but we tend to fight and divide over all these different theologies. Secondly, um, unity is hard because echo chambers make us feel safe and secure. Uh, when we're exposed to all these different ideas, it, it actually makes, it creates anxiety in us. When you're, you come across a Christian who thinks differently than you, or you come across an idea that is different from what you think, it creates actually anxiety in you because this is different and I don't know how to handle that. And so what we tend to do is we tend to, because I'm feeling anxious, is like, well, I'm gonna go secure my position and make it stronger. And so we tend to love echo chambers. And echo chamber is basically when you, you say something and you get an echo back. <laughs> so we spend most of our time typically reading books, listening to preachers, listening to ideas that actually strengthen our currently held positions. And so we get stronger in our own position, which makes us even feel more uncomfortable with other people's positions. And it, it, it's a cycle. I, I, we're exposed to more people with different ideas, more Christians with different ideas, which makes me anxious. So I run and want to make my position stronger, which makes me more anxious when I run into another Christian. And when we're stuck in these echo chambers, instead of actually stopping and trying to listen and understand the viewpoints of all these other Christians and ideas that we are meeting today. And, uh, and 2 Timothy actually talks about this. It says, they will look for teachers who will tell them only what they want to hear. And one of the issues of, of all this information out there is, is we can just narrow it down and only to one little stream, and it makes, we, we begin to think that's the only way of looking at a certain doctrine or something, and we begin to create disunity with others. Uh, number three, uh, we naturally want to distance ourselves and demonize things we don't understand. Again, just psychologically speaking, when we run into someone who is different, it, it tends to make us, makes us anxious. And often when something is different from us, we, we want to demonize it. Uh, because it makes us feel good to, again, bolster our position because we don't want to feel anxious and insecure. This is exactly what they did to Jesus. I mean, there was the theology of the day, the, the theology of the Pharisees, the religious system. Jesus comes along and he kind of brings in a new way of thinking. He brings back in this idea of a loving God and, and that God loves tax collectors and sinners, which was directly opposed to the theology of the day. What did they do with Jesus? They didn't go down, well, Jesus, you know, I'm really curious about your ideas. You know, would you explain that to me? No, they demonized Jesus. In fact, in Mark 3, it says, the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. I mean, they demonized Jesus. They thought he was possessed by demons. And, and Christians do the same, I mean, all the time. I mean, they run into someone with a different theology, a different way of looking at something, I mean, a different perspective, a different denomination, and, and it's like, you know, you know that they're wrong, they're incorrect, or I mean, they must be heretics or demonized, or maybe Satan's gotten it or something, because we tend to demonize things that are different. And um, it's, it's just not walking in the love of God. Uh, part of this is what is called a cognitive mising, and this is the science behind disunity, and I've had to, had to read a lot about conflict and disunity because, you know, as part of my job as a pastor uh, is actually just working through conflict because, again, you get a group of 200 people. We might have 200 people who call the Junction Church their home. I mean, I'm constantly dealing with conflict. <laughs> so I've read tons on it, but there's a lot of science actually between conflict and division. We, we think it's about theology, but actually it's more actually about the science of our identity and often putting our identity 
not in Jesus and, and in other places. But there's this thing called cognitive mising, and that is our brains are constantly trying to save energy. It takes a lot of mental energy to, to process things we see, people we run into. And so what our brains naturally do is, is they make preconceptions, they make prejudgments. And this can actually be very handy because when you are invited to someone's house and they pull out a chair, we just, we naturally just, in our mind, knows I can sit in that chair. I don't have to stop and like examine a chair every time. Is this going to hold my weight? You know, how is this constructed? You know, what is this thing? You know, am I able to sit on it? Am I supposed to put food on it? Or what is the deal? We just, our brains know it's a chair <laughs> because we, we've, we've made a preconception. We've judged. Our brain wants to save energy. So every time I see a chair, it just knows it's a chair. But when we run into something that's different, our brain, as quickly as possible, want to try to put it into a box to save energy. Our brains naturally don't want to be curious about things that are different. They don't want to stop and try to hear the story and understand the perspective and the background. I mean, as quickly as possible, it wants to put it in a box. And this is why we so quickly make judgments. Why we so quickly just stereotype certain kinds of people and, and denominations and other Christians because it saves mental energy. Now, it might save mental energy, but you are abusing the, the glory of God when you do that to other Christians. Because again, he has given us his glory so that we might be one, so that the world might know the love of God. This also has to do with our identity. We're going to talk more about this in a moment. Uh, but um, Christina Cleveland, she uh, wrote a whole book on disunity, said this. Research conducted by uh, Fina Spencer and others suggest that those who uh, degrade other groups are doing so at least partly because their identity is threatened. According to this research, the very presence of divisions in the body of Christ indicates that many of us are still fighting the identity wars of our adolescence. In other words, you remember back in high school, I mean, you were, we were always so worried about our identity and trying to fit in and feel good, so we, you know, we make sure we try to get around the right group and, and, and we're very careful about trying to get our identity because our identity is not in, in, in God, maybe, it's, it's, it's in the group we're associated with. And the same goes with the church. We often try to get our identity from being a part of the right group and not the wrong group, or saying good things about this group and trying to put down this other group. I mean, psychologically, it's just simple. They've shown that when you put down another person, it makes you feel better about yourself. I mean, this is why we can get so negative about other people in other groups, because, because our identity is so not in Christ that we have to constantly try to get it from places in the world. And so one of the quickest ways to do it is like, I'm a part of the right church and you're part of the wrong church. Oh, it makes me feel good. <laughs> we, we, we're still fighting these, these uh, immature adolescent battles. Number four, uh, we often put our identity in religion rather than the gospel. And earlier in this series, we, we defined the idea of negative religion. And that was any system of belief, behavior, and belonging that people use to achieve rather than receive right standing with God. And so uh, negative religion is all about right belief. You better have your 50-point your, your theological list and it better be perfect. It's all about right behavior. You better have the, 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 the proper sexual and moral Christian ethic and it better be this one and not all the other ones that are out there in Christianity. Uh, it better be, you better belong to this church and not that church and this denomination and not that denomination. It's not about Jesus. It's about a system of rules and regulations and the right lists. And, and often, 
disunity in the church is all about, well, you have a different doctrinalist than I do. Oh, you have a different moral or sexual conduct than I do. Or you belong to the wrong church. And, and it's not about, hey, you belong to Jesus? Awesome. Uh, you're, you're part of the same family. Let's start from there. Uh, I mean, our, our identity is so wrapped up in these things rather than in Jesus that we can't get along with each other. And so part of the answer is working through this. And, and we're going we're gonna to do that in a, in a moment here. Um, we've got to remember the gospel in Ephesians 2.9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for that. If we just get the gospel, that you are saved by faith, not by anything you have done. That other Christian that you are putting down and, and thinking they're horrible, they are saved by faith. There's nothing they have done. So it's actually not about their doctrinal list. It's not about their, their right conduct and their right you know, moral list and their being a part of the right church. It's about Jesus. You've received the gift. They've received the gift. That is where our unity is actually found. And again, this is so hard. We hate this. I mean, I love, I would love to be a part of a church where everybody thought exactly like me. I mean, I'd love it. Uh, that'd be wonderful. But that's not gospel. That, that's not Christian. It's hard. It's very hard. But Jesus said, we have received his glory so that we might be one with all Christians and perfectly one with all other, other Christians. Uh, Tim Keller said this. He says, idolatry functions widely inside religious communities where doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. This is a subtle but deadly mistake. The sign that you have slipped into this form of self-justification is that you become what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. Scoffers always show contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. This is a sign that they do not see themselves as sinners saved by grace. Instead, their trust in the rightness of their views makes them feel superior. And this really boils down to the whole problem of disunity in the church. Is that, that, that we, we haven't got our identity in Christ, so we have to get it from our, our, our position of trying to feel superior and right, and, and I gotta feel better because I'm a part of the right group and I have a better list, and you know, I hear God, but you guys don't hear God. And, and, and we get our identity from, from putting down others and building up a certain group rather than just like surrendering and just lying in Jesus and having our complete identity found in, in Him. This cartoon, I don't know if it'll come up, but this is my all time favorite cartoon. I mean, I love this guy. I think I've showed it before. You probably can't see the words, but the reason this cartoon is funny because, I mean, I took a whole class on, on being funny at one time, and uh, the, the, the way, there's different ways you can be funny. One way to be funny is, is you just say something that everybody knows, knows is true, but nobody says it. That can be really funny. When you say something, everybody knows it's true, but nobody says it. And that's, that's exactly what this cartoon is doing. I mean, it's, it's showing like all the divisions and split in the, in the, the body of Christ. And then this guy teaching the membership class, he points to his little denomination, his little group, and he says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And then, and then someone says over here, Jesus is so lucky to have us. <laughs> you know, we subtly think that a lot. You know, you know we, we, we were the right ones, and you know, all those other people have got it wrong. And, and this is the height of pride to think, 
that the Holy Spirit never spoke to anybody throughout 2,000 years of church history, and the Holy Spirit has only spoken to you, <laughs> and that you somehow got it all right. I mean, I wish, you know, every single Christian could take a class on church history. Because there's one thing that you come out of church history class understanding. One, there's a lot of fighting and division and conflict. And number two, is that there is a lot of diversity in Christianity. Most people have no clue how diverse Christianity is. It is very diverse theologically. Now you boil it all down, I mean, we get back to those essential issues, the Nicene Creed, the death and resurrection of Jesus, those kinds of things. But beyond that, there is such diversity. And Jesus wants us to be one in all that diversity. He wants us to be one in those foundational issues. So we got to keep moving here. <clears throat> Could have done a whole series on this. Each, each one of these points is a whole sermon. So how can we <laughs> become a bridge rather than a religious wall? And a wall, walls are religion. <laughs> they always put barriers between, you know, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And, and I'm right and all those other Christians on the other side of the wall, they're, they're wrong. But that is not the gospel. That is not what Jesus wanted. Clearly, Jesus says, we have received glory so that we might be perfectly, perfectly united with other Christians. So, so that requires us being a bridge. It requires us meeting people on the bridge and having discussions. So how can we do that? The first thing we need to do is we need to learn to connect with each other through our heart and not through religion. We tend to want to connect to other Christians based on, do they have the same doctrinal list as I do? Do they have the same sexual or moral ethic as I do? Do they, have the, the, do they belong to the right group as I do? And if they do, then I'll hang out with them and I can be one with them. But if they don't, well, you guys suck and you're heretics and you're wrong and you're, you know, you know back in the day you would kill them. <laughs> Today we just fight and say nasty things to them and think they're not Christians. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, people judge by outward appearance. Or we're judged based on negative religion. But the Lord looks at the heart. And this is how we are to respond to other per people who are different. We don't want to judge them by externals or how our cognitive mising brain wants to throw them in a box. We actually want to stop and say, hey, let's have a discussion. I want to know your experiences. I want to know, you know, just the history of, of the stuff you've been reading and learning. And I, I want to meet you on the bridge and hear you and connect with your heart. Because after all, everything we say and do flows from our heart. So if you don't know someone's heart, you're simply judging them. This works. Do you know in some of the most serious conflicts in the world, like the, the conflicts between the Israelis and Palestinians, I mean, you probably can't think of a more difficult conflict on this planet than this one. I mean, there have been billions and trillion, trillions of dollars thrown at this conflict trying to solve it. I mean, political groups and everything thrown at this, they have found only one thing really works. And just like unity in the church, it is the hardest thing, but it's the one thing that works. <laughs> there are so many things that have been thrown at the church and trying to get us to actually get along with each other, but you know, there's actually only one thing that works. That is connecting with each other at the heart. So what they have found is they can take, they take one Israeli, they take one Palestinian, they put them in a room across the table, and they simply have each other share their stories. And once they hear each other's stories, it's all of a sudden like, you know, I, I understand your frustrations. I under, understand the story. And there's unity that actually develops through that. I mean, if we could just do that, 
is Christians. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Instead of judging them through the doctrinal list or you know whatever, it's just like, hey, I, I'd like to hear your story. I know you come from a different denomination than I do. You know, you know my cognitivizing brain is freaking out, and, and I want to just live in my echo chamber. This really freaks me out, but, but I want to hear your story of Christianity. I want to hear who you've been listening and teaching, and I just want to, how's that been, and how's your relationship with God, and to actually be curious and connect with the heart. Secondly, or here's a quote here, and Diana Bass said this. She says, it saddens me that we've come to think of our lives with the thin labels left and right. Life is poetry, prose, love, joy, hope, surprise, mystery, wonder, awe, beauty, challenge, suffering, question, doubt, faith, transformation, tenderness, compassion, empathy, sadness. None of that is left or right. To look at the world and see left and right is to see the most narrow rendering of humankind. To limit the possibility of love breaking in to shrink our own souls. Those other people you're talking to, those other Christians, they're human. They're human beings made in the image of God, and God loves them, and, 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 and it's about Jesus. I mean, why do we abuse the glory of God by fighting and conflicting and, and not actually connecting with our heart? I'm not saying that we can't have different theologies. We need to, because the world is diverse. Christians are diverse. But to be able to connect at the heart and not throw cognitive-mizing labels on folks would go a long way in creating unity. Okay, number two. Uh, we have to realize we are all products of what we have experienced and learned. I mean, we are simply all products of what we experienced and learned. You take someone like us who have grown up in this culture, maybe you've grown up in a Baptist church and you've listened to all the Baptist theology and you've had Baptist parents and you went to a Baptist seminary and, and you're surrounded by Baptistness. That's what you've learned and experienced. Now you can go, you know, across the world or maybe across to another city or even the same, a church in the same town who, who grew up in a, in a charismatic home and they've been taught all their life about healings and prophecy and, and you know, that kind of thing and, and they've seen it maybe in their church and, and yet the Baptist per, per, person has been taught all their life that the healings are, are not for today and yet these two Christians fight over each other but maybe if they just stopped and said, let me hear your story. Maybe if they just stopped and realized that that person is, an ex, is, is like that because of all the things they've learned, experienced, taught, read. I mean, again, we, we make people out to be non-human. We take the humanness out of people when we fight and simply throw a label on them and just think they're wrong, forgetting that all of us have had different experiences. Christians in North America have a very different experience from Orthodox Christians in Russia. Very different experience from, from Christians in, in India. I mean, it's the height of pride, again, to think that we have it all together and that God only speaks to us. I mean, one day we're going to see this in Revelation 7, 9. It says, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. And they're all robed in white because of Jesus, not because they had a different or the correct list. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be people there that you probably thought were heretics and you thought were in the wrong denomination, and all of a sudden you are going to be like, oh, did I ever abuse the glory of God because I missed something. I was putting my identity in the wrong place. We've got to connect with people through the heart. 
we've got to enter into this prayer of Jesus and actually be serious about carrying the glory of God well and looking at other Christians through the eyes that they are made in the image of God and they are loved by God. Okay, we've got to keep going. Number three, um, we've got to get out of our echo chamber, read, study, and experience widely. And we just hit on this a little bit, but I mean, the Proverbs talks a lot about gaining wisdom. You do not gain much wisdom if you only read books that you agree with, listen to preachers that agree with you, and only study stuff and hang around people who are exactly like you. That will make you, uh, it, it'll make you just not someone who is very good at unity. Because the more you bolster your position, the less you understand other people's positions, and the more you're going to feel anxiety in your body psychologically when you run into someone different, and, and you're just going to want to put them down and demonize them and, and push them away. Now, I love reading books that I agree with. I still mostly do, and you probably will mostly do, but I challenge you at times to step out of your box. Now, you can do this on YouTube. Pick a church that is just crazily different than you and listen to a sermon. Grab a book that comes from a different theological perspective and read it. You know, one of my very favorite books of all time is called Across the Spectrum. And we've done a whole sermon series around that. I'll do another one because I love it, which is basically takes every theological topic and it says, here's how different Christians look at it. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's a really good point. I never thought about that way. I've had some really big lessons in this. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I was, I was very judgmental, very religious. I thought I knew everything. I, I knew the answer to every question you could ask me. And I was so serious about the seven-day tribulation or the seven-year tribulation and the rapture of the church and dispensational theology. I mean, I gobbled that stuff up. I read books and teachers, and, and that was like the only view of the book of Revelation of the end times that I believed was okay. And when I ran into a Christian who had a different view, man, I would actually get angry. I remember I was slamming the table years and years ago. It was like, the, the rapture and the seven-year tribulation is the only way to see the Bible. <laughs> and then, you know, I actually had to take a class in seminary on the book of Revelation, <laughs> and I was forced I didn't want to, but I was forced to read commentaries from all the other views on the book of Revelation. And I remember reading these books and were like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Oh, I didn't see that before. But that's a really good point. <laughs> and, and I came out of that. I was like, you know, really, we don't know. There, there's scholars on all sides of that issue, and, and they all have really good points, and this one has better points over here. But, but I am actually able to walk in complete unity with all the different end times views. Why? Because I understand them. This is why it's important for you to try to understand the perspective of other Christians. Because when you understand their story and their experience and how they see something, all of a sudden, your heart connects with them. You may not agree with them still, but you're like, I understand. I mean, we have become so disunified in the church because we are stuck in our echo chambers. And, and my hope is, and, and because the church naturally is more and more that way, people from lots of different theological angles coming in, that we would be able to connect with people's heart instead of judging them. All right, number four. Almost done here. Uh, let go of your desire to control everyone around you. Let go of your desire to control everyone around you. Trust God to work in people's lives. I mean, I want to do a whole message around this sometime because if you can get this one thing, you will actually be set free. You really will. This is where religion gets its stronghold in our lives and in churches. 
is this idea that we have to try to control people and we got to control their theology and we got to control their, their ethic and we got to control them because that makes me really uncomfortable and I get anxious when people have different ideas. So I need to control them. Why? To make me feel better about myself. But the reality is, it is not our job to fix people or control people. That's God's job. Philippians 2 says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. God is working in that person, giving them the desire to do what pleases God. And you know what? That's not always going to look the same as you because they have different gifts. They have different callings. They have different backgrounds. Their theology might even be different. And God's okay with that, I think, at times. But that's God's job. Ezekiel 36 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God is working in us, causing us to obey him, us to follow him. It's God's job. I mean, I tell you, church unity would just go 500 times better immediately if we just dropped trying to control people. If we just trusted, yeah, that God is working in that person. They love Jesus, God's at work in them. They don't love Jesus. You know what? God is still at work in people who don't love Jesus because he's wooing them and calling them and, and, and trying to love them. Uh, let go of your desire to control everyone. And number five, I think it's the last one finally. The unity and love of Jesus can only be seen in diversity. It can only be seen in diversity. You see, we want unity to look like, you know, I'll be one with everybody who thinks like me, acts like me, is just like me. I'll be one with those kind of people. That was just what the Pharisees did. They wrote off the Samaritans. They wrote off the Gentiles. They wrote off, you know, the whole lot of the New Testament argument is over the Jewish Christians writing off Gentile Christians. It can only be seen in diversity. I mean, look what Jesus said. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do only good to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. In other words, if you only be, want to be unified with Christians who look and act like you or who kind of make you feel secure in your own insecurities, well, what good is that? <laughs> that doesn't require the love of God. I mean, uh, even you know, someone who doesn't love God can do that is, is friends and unified with people who think like them. In Jesus' prayer, he says, I've given you the glory, the very glory of God, so that you might be perfectly united. Jesus knew how crazy the church would be, and he still prays this, because he says, if our church, if the church could be united, then the world will see that God is amazingly loving. Why? Because I'll look at the church and see all these people with different theologies and different views and different backgrounds, and they're getting along, and people are going to say, what in the world is going on? I've never seen that in the world. <laughs> That's impossible. There must be a God. <laughs> These people are getting along with each other. I mean, imagine the testimony of the church. If we could actually do that. If we could actually just get our identity in Christ and be okay with all the differences, trusting that God is at work in those people, different people's lives. I mean, uh, Scott McKnight, who's a scholar, said this. The church is a fellowship of difference and difference. The church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. When this happens, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed by God to be. The church is God's show and tell for the world. And then he goes on and he says, uh, we, have been, we have been smothered in, we, ha we have smothered all differences in the church so that everything is the same. Designed for one gender, 
one socioeconomic group, one race, one culture, one theology, we have become ingrown like a toenail. Anyone who doesn't fit becomes invisible, gets ignored, is shelved, or goes AWOL. And, and this happens all the time in the church. I mean, there's often this kind of, it's, it's, it's around this kind of thing, and if you don't fit in, you eventually get pushed out. Again, that, that is not what Jesus wants from the church. He, he wants it to be like a salad, a beautiful salad with lots of different colors. And if you pick a, picture a salad with lots of different colors in it, I mean, those are the most tasty salads. That's the way Jesus wants the church to be. Lots of diversity, lots of difference, lots of different ideas, but unified around, around him. Yeah, we, we kind of make it to be, we want the church to be a salad just with one color, one flavor. And again, that's easier. Sure helps us feel better about ourselves. It's easier to love those kind of people, but that's not the gospel. That's not the desire for the church. Okay, we got we to gotta, we gotta really finish here. Okay, last one. This is the last point, I promise. And this is a good point. If you fell asleep, wake up for this. <laughs> Unity will only happen when we get our identity from Jesus rather than our brand of Christianity. Unity will only happen when we get our identity from Jesus rather than our brand of Christianity. The reality is by the way most Christians act and talk about each other, they have more faith in their brand of Christianity than they do in Jesus. They get their identity more in their brand of Christianity than they actually do in Jesus. If we actually learn to get our identity in Jesus, we can answer the prayer of Jesus. <laughs> the only reason we do not answer the prayer of Jesus is because we, we are getting our identity from other places. I mean, think about it this way. This is the best way I can explain it, and I think, I think you'll get it. Let's say you have three people. They're all into hockey. One person is, is really into the Canucks. They are, they're all about the Canucks. Uh, they study the Canucks. They know every player on the Canucks. They, they, they're just a Canucks fan. They love the Canucks to the moon. There's another person who loves the Flames. They're all about the Flames, the Calgary Flames. They know everything about the Flames. They love the Flames, and, and, and they just, they're just saturating the Flames. There's a third person who simply loves hockey. They love everything about hockey. Now, the Canucks person is not going to like that Flames person very much. Because you like a different team. How dare you like that team? The Canucks are the best, and the Flames suck, and, you know, blah, 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 you know. And then the Flames person is mad at the Canucks person because they don't like the Flames, but the person who loves hockey is like, I love you both because you both love hockey. You know, it's about hockey. It doesn't matter what team you're on because I love hockey. The hockey, hockey's amazing. <laughs> See, he's got his identity in hockey. The other guys have their identity in their team. And sadly, much of Christianity is we have our identity in our team. You know, I got my team, I got my favorite preachers, I got my books, I got my theology, and if you come along and you have a different team than mine, then I'm going to fight against you and I don't want to be part of you because you're different. And, and then there's the, the person who gets the gospel who's like, I'm just into Jesus. I go to a Catholic church, I go to a Reformed church, I go to a Baptist church, I go to a Charismatic church. Maybe I prefer one or the other, but I understand they're all in Jesus, and so they're all my family. And so you can actually be perfectly united with a Christian who is totally different than you when your identity is in Jesus. Because that's actually the fundamentals of the faith. The death, resurrection of the Jesus, the Nicene Creed, those things that actually all Christians agree on. If you could just get your identity there, church conflict would look a whole lot different. And so again, you could have three people, one person who is totally into their progressive theology, and then there's a person who's totally into their reform theology, and there's a person who's totally into Jesus theology. 
And those guys are going to be fighting each other, but the person is going to be like, you know, I love Jesus. I'm curious. I'm interested in knowing about your theology. I'm interested in knowing about your theology too and, and how that works with Jesus. You, you get this? Our identity must be in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's the only way this is going to work. And this is the, way, this is the, the, the mission, the, the, uh, the, the, the vision of the church in Colossians. It says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, even uncivilized in there. Those people usually don't make it in the church. Slave or free, it doesn't matter. It's about Jesus. It is about Jesus. Ephesians 2 says this very clearly. What brings unity? He says, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And if we would just center on Jesus, it will bring peace to all this craziness and judging and misconceptions and all this junk that goes on in the church. And one more quote, and we will actually be done. Sorry, this was the longest sermon ever. But I had to finish the series today. <laughs> uh, last quote, Klein Snodgrass. He says this, we know what is required. We are to live, uh, we are to live unity. We are not asked to be like other Christians or agree with them but to recognize we are all, we are one with them and share the same Lord and the same benefits. We may not write people off any more uh, than one part of the body can dismiss another part. What this text underscores is that unity is not some non-essential, some afterthought, or some byproduct of the faith, but it is at the heart of Christianity. The revelation that came in Christ was a revelation about unity. If we do not proclaim unity, we have not proclaimed the gospel. If we do not live unity, we have missed the gospel's impact, and we have abused the very grace of God, and we only hurt the mission of the church, because the reason, again, we have received the glory of God is so that we might be one, and when we are one, then the mission of the church will be complete. Then the world will know that God loves them. And so if we're going to focus on anything, and this whole series, again, comes down to, again, the one command, <laughs> we love one another, and this one passionate prayer of Jesus, that we might be one, and just get our identity from Jesus, and have beautiful conversations to other human beings who love Jesus. So Father, we just pray into this prayer of Jesus. We just say amen, amen, and amen. And, and Father, we just acknowledge that this is, is probably the most difficult calling the church has. It's more difficult than probably anything else the church has been called to, and it's this thing of unity. So God, would you work in our hearts? Would you humble us? Would you do beautiful things in our midst? Would you help us to see each other as humans and designed in the image of God and loved by God? And God, maybe we just have beautiful, beautiful conversations around our core, Jesus Christ. Amen.